0: Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May.
1: Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May. And today I have with me Dr. Samuel Rittel. They are a Max Weber Fellow at the European University Institute, a specialist in queer experiences of conflict, crisis, and displacement. And they are currently in Bogota. Conducting research. So, welcome, Sam.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Laura May. I am thrilled to be here.
1: I am so excited to have you here because I have so many questions because you have produced a seemingly endless number of papers and book chapters already. And so, we have a lot to talk about. But let's just jump straight in though, because you defended your doctoral thesis recently, recently or earlier this year. And I want to start off talking about that and getting to understand a bit about what that was. This subtitle, at least, was paramilitary violence against LGBT people in Colombia. What is that all about? Most open question ever. What is that all about? What was your thesis?
0: Yeah, so my thesis looked basically at the logic of what I call anti-LGBT violence by paramilitaries in Colombia during the country's civil war or internal armed conflict. There's big debates about whether you classify it as one or the other. And basically, I was interested in this dynamic of, like, why would armed actors at the center of a conflict spend time, resources, energy going after people at the margins? And so I wanted to look at this idea of anti-LGBT violence. And Columbia was a really interesting case study because when I first started my PhD, which, you know, many years ago, there there had just been this peace deal with the FARC. And this peace deal had this massive gender-inclusive, LGBT-inclusive component to the construction of peace in the country. Where there's smoke, there's fire. The fact that there was such a strong element of LGBT inclusion made me think that there was a logic of violence against LGBT communities in the country. So as I started to do this research in Colombia and I started to do some initial trips, speak to contacts, I've been working in Latin America, mostly in Venezuela on human rights topics, but had some work at the UN. So I had was able to connect my contacts here. I learned quickly that there was a very long history of victimization of LGBT populations during war. And I also learned that the dynamics were very different between the FARC and other guerrilla groups and paramilitaries. And so I made a kind of a gut check decision based on me being in Colombia, which was that there was a lot of time and energy and focus on the guerrillas, which made sense because there was this peace deal that just happened. But given that I was focused not exactly on uncovering what happened, because there's so many LGBT rights NGOs that are doing that type of work, there's the National Center for Historic Memory that was doing that work. There's transitional justice and courts that were doing that work. I was like, it's not my job to try and uncover. I'm not, I'm not going to come in with this like colonial Indiana Jones mentality of like, let's discover what really happened. Because like, it's already being done. It's being done by people with much better contacts, experience, knowledge than me. And so I realized quickly that my role was to try and be slower and more analytical and think more theoretically about what is the logic of, it, of this violence? How does it relate to the dynamics of war? And so I ultimately chose to study the paramilitaries for my dissertation, because the paramilitaries, though there are neo-forms of paramilitarism in the country today, they have different names. Cran de Golfo, Aguilas Negras, the Black Eagles. These are all like different ways to say the new form of paramilitarism, which are much more aligned with narco-trafficking and dynamics of the drug trade. The paramilitaries formally demobilized around 2005. Some demobilized earlier, some demobilized a few years later. No one will say that was the end of, of paramilitarism in the country. But it was the end of what I call formal paramilitarism, which was a paramilitarism that was extremely state aligned with state objectives of trying to rid the country of Marxist-Leninist or communist insurgency. And so in doing that, I was able to study a group that formally no longer existed, even though, of course, again, there's successor elements everywhere. Formerly no longer exists. It was already in the process, very deep, like 10 years into at the time, a transitional justice property. A lot of their worst crimes were already have been like, admitted in the public sphere. So I didn't feel like there was this element that I was going to be revealing things or making people feel uncomfortable that in interviewing them, they were going to reveal things. It had a bit of a distance of history. It still is very tied to the present. But the paramilitaries were one of the groups that really took it on as a political project to rid the country of what they called subversion. Subversion was guerrillas, perceived allies, trade unionists, but it was also socially marginalized groups, sex workers, drug users, uh, people experiencing homelessness, and LGBT populations. And so I focused predominantly on LGBT populations because I just felt in the range of a PhD, it would be a lot to take on all the groups. And I wanted to look specifically at like, how genders, structures of gender and sexuality kind of relate to these ideas of marginality and war. And I wanted to study one single group because I thought that if I could study one single group, it'd be easier to identify their logic. I could see how they're exploring this phenomenon. And so just look at a group that was really performative and public about going after LGBT populations. These groups would come into towns, they'd give out pamphlets. If you've ever read Gabriel Garcia Marquez, there's sometimes he talks about pamphlets. It'll be like banged to the front of a church or to the city hall or just thrown from helicopters. These lists of people these are subversives, they do not belong, they're not part of the people, leave now or suffer the consequences. And sometimes it would just be like, these are the types of groups they are, or it would be like a list of names and a list of quote unquote sins. And it'd be like for being gay, drug user, things like that. And so I thought this performative element also made it quite easy to understand that this was a logic, this was a target. This isn't just the exacerbation of existing heteronormative or cis-sexist patriarchal gender and sexual regimes or social structures. This is something they have committed to as a strategy of their war, and they're going to go after it.
1: So when you're talking about people dropping pamphlets out of helicopters and things, I think the only time I've encountered that in my lifetime is in old school documentaries and maybe the occasional cartoon. So when actually is this we're talking about? Is it recent? Did it happen throughout the armed conflict?
0: So yes and no. The form of paramilitarism that I study is what they call the second generation of paramilitarism, which was early 80s to early 2000s. So it's like a 20-year range that we're talking about here. The pamphlets that I'm talking about from the helicopter happened in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. It's a bit of a gray zone, but it was like turn of the millennium. Before that, in the first generation of paramilitarism, paramilitarism is a really complicated phenomenon. It's incredibly decentralized, very autonomous within the country. But when they started to adopt this national commitment to subversion, or against subversion rather, that was when they kind of became a federation in the early 90s. And so it's really in the early 90s that you start seeing these schools, these educational camps, training institutions, where they're learning, like going after LGBT populations is how you produce social order in a town. The thesis began focusing on like different forms of this violence, but that strategy really reached its fever pitch in the 90s and early 2000s.
1: Just for our listeners, and a little bit for me, where do the paramilitaries actually fit into the conflict?
0: So they have a really interesting history. And for English-speaking populations, probably the closest you'll see to them in the media would probably be the show Narcos on Netflix. So in the 70s and 80s, what the guerrillas started doing to finance, but also like get political concessions, they started kidnapping. And they started kidnapping upper-class people. And then when they realized they can get like money from it, they started going after middle-class people. When they started going after middle-class people, that's kind of when a like, large swath of the population started turning against them. Once you started victimizing in a quite random way, from your own community, it's really hard to, like, become, stay fans of that. So, the perceived intelligibility gets a lot harder. So a bunch of paramilitary groups started being raised by, like, a conglomeration of business elites, but also narco-traffickers. So, like, muerte secuestadores, sequestadores, like, death to kidnappers was something that shows up in, you know, Narcos. It has ties to different narco groups, including Pablo Escobar was involved at one point. And what's happening is in Medellin and in Cali, in the two central and western cities of Colombia, they, they started raising these like proclaimed militias to go after kidnappers, which were the guerrillas. Then, as they started getting a lot more money and a lot more force, they started having some tacit, behind-the-scenes endorsement from the local political elites and the local, the state, really. And it was just because it was really hard to go after guerrillas. These guerrillas, it wasn't a conventional war like what you're seeing in Ukraine and Russia right now, where like you see where the fronts are. These are people that were in the jungle. They were in certain urban areas of a city that maybe didn't have as much of a state presence that were poorer in nature. They were drawing a lot of support from certain populations who felt forgotten by the state. And so the way they kind of followed this almost like Maoist idea of to catch a fish, you have to drain the sea. And so they practiced a lot of civilian victimization. And the civilian victimization happened in certain regions of the country that were perceived to be hotbeds of support for this population. And so it became this really messy, dark beast. Could you say, was there a definitive moment when the state and the paramilitary is united? I mean, I wouldn't be able to say that. Some paramilitary scholars might. But, you know, you do have a lot of history of counterinsurgency strategy from America, particularly in Vietnam where they say like one way to go after insurgents is to raise urban militias or to raise militias. You have lines in the field manual, like militias can use selective terror for aims, but it should be controlled. And so, you know, you can see kind of the writing on the wall in terms of where this is coming from. But, you know, the formal, like how mixed it was. There was a huge scandal in Colombia in the early 2000s called Parapolitica. Every scandal in Colombia has a title, which I love. So they had this huge scandal that just showed how connected they were with elected officials. A very common finding in conflict studies is that violence happens a lot during election years. Huge correlation between the two. And in Colombia, what you could see was that when you're tied to local political elites, they would exercise selective forms of violence that benefited them in terms of voting. And so people didn't realize the extent of that until it all came to the fore. So yeah, that's basically like the foundings. It was tied to narco-trafficking, then kind of split from narco-trafficking. And there was like this really intense, like, We are going to do what the state can't. We are going to be like the next frontier of the state. The Colombian army has five columns or pillars. And they always talked about the paramilitaries as the sixth pillar. And so because of that, there was a very big, like we're going to do a lot of illegal stuff in terms of civilian victimization, but it's going to be through the context of war and perhaps more justifiable. And we're not going to do things that would morally degrade our project. And then when the paramilitaries confederated in the mid 1990s, they basically had a big discussion among the elites about whether they would get in bed with narco trafficking, and they ultimately decided to get in bed with narco trafficking because they thought that it would give them more leverage if there was ever a peace negotiation between the paramilitaries and the state. That they'd have more control over insecurity in the country. That ended up being a very divisive decision that kind of put a hole in the boat of that process because it just meant that a lot of people didn't ever want to demobilize because they were making so much money. Like in the early '80s, there was not affiliated with narco-trafficking, and in the 90s it became like, very much part of the project. What the central junta decided was like, it's each front's decision about how engaged they want to be with narco-trafficking.
1: So I understand that the paramilitaries were out there calling people, including LGBT people, subversives. And I want to know, was this one-sided? Were the guerrillas doing the same thing in the same way, or was there something different going on?
0: Yes and no. The guerrillas weren't using the word subversive because subversive became this kind of catch-all against communism. And obviously the guerrillas identified as communist or at least Lenin Marxists. Mm-hmm. And they had this obsession with purity. And this purity obsession was ideological and strategic. On the one hand, it was, if we're going to build a new nation, if we're going to build a new country, we can't have those who aren't ready for the project. This is something that I think it's Linda Guerra in the writing on Cuba calls revolutionary homophobia. Which was this idea that, like, a new nation has a very classic idea of what is a male, what is a woman, what they should be doing. And so, like, these weak men need to be get gotten rid of or changed. Um, so, you know, one thing the paramilitaries didn't do with the guerrillas was use a lot of forced labor. So, there were a lot of like forced labor camps, with gay men type of stuff. But this purity had this other association, which was like a lot of these guerrilla communities were very removed from the state. They're very removed from instances of public health. And so they were extremely paranoid about. HIV. And so what happened was, if you were found out to be gay, or if you found out to be HIV positive, you would be HIV tested, and everyone around you would be HIV tested, all your friends, family, network, basically. And anyone who was HIV positive was either told, like, get out now or be killed. And so those are actually some of the hardest people. There's a lot There's a lot of efforts in Colombia being done to research these populations. Fernando Serrano-Mania at Uniendes, as well as the LGBT organization had a report on this called Truncated Lives, but they're like, it's a double burden. And these people were kicked out of a community for being gay and for being HIV positive. So it was this double stigma. So that was very like guerrilla specific, really. And so it shows basically what my thesis argues, which is like the intertwining of ideology and strategy had a big effect about what this violence looks like, whether this violence happens to begin with, but what it looked like.
1: So you've just said there's some great research being done already on LGBT people and their eviction from the state in Colombia. So what actually sets your research apart? What makes it special?
0: One of the things about this project that I thought was really important was like I came to Colombia and I did what I call the listening tour where I met with all the different activists, academics, institutional organizations working on the subject matter. Kind of to understand like, the range of the phenomenon through their eyes, but also to be like, where do I fit in as this foreign researcher? And some people handle that delicately. And some people were like, what the hell can you do that we're not already doing? And, you know, I think there was a strong reaction to this idea that I could go slower, look at something historical and theorize like, deeper in a sense. And I think like, what this dissertation did and does and um, how it kind of connects the broader landscape in Colombia, which is that in Colombia there were very strong explanations of why this violence happened. The two big debates are whether it was a form of social control to the perpetration of a prejudice-based violence, kind of like this exacerbation of existing social structures of exclusion, homophobia, transphobia, et cetera, or whether like these paramilitaries, are trying to put in a moral order. And this is a very moral form of violence that is a social control through this imposition of a new regime, this moralized regime. And what this dissertation did was it kind of said like, well, it's both. And the answer that this dissertation puts forward is not necessarily why it happened, but why it happened the way it did. So an explanation of how it happened, and I think that was really important because I think if you look at the existing debate in Colombia now, like there is obviously people who have nuance between what the guerrillas did and what the paramilitaries did. But what this dissertation does is it really creates this theoretical frame. To understand why the paramilitary violence against LGBT populations looked so different than the guerrilla violence against LGBT populations. So it's not to say that one did it worse or not to compare in terms of like level severity, but to look at almost like the characteristics of it, as I call it, or the patterns of it were really different. And it's because they were attempting different things with different ide- ideologies.
1: And given the way that queer and trans people were treated during the more violent parts of the conflict, is there still an ongoing effect today. I mean, how does it continue to impact the lives of LGBT people in Colombia, if at all,
0: of course? I mean, it's hard. It's very complicated, the LGBT experience in Colombia today. I mean, it's obviously we're in a very different place. There's just been a massive amount of change in the lives of LGBT populations, really since the 91 constitution came into effect, which really launched the modern form of the LGBT rights movement here in Colombia. You know, obviously, Colombia has a lot of Regimes are laws on paper that are very supportive. We have marriage equality here. There's a lot of protection against discrimination. There's protection against people with HIV. But the reality is, is that this is still probably one of the top three countries in Latin America with the most reported incidents of violence against LGBT populations. Now, whether that's in the context or the framework of war, or that's just a society with a lot of intercommunal violence, those are different debates. In terms of the logics of war, the war looks very different in Colombia today. You know, there are still guerrilla groups, are still far dissident groups. And, you know, I'm not as familiar with their current patterns of LGBT victimization. But I will say that in certain areas where I work, at least, despite this horrific history, there are thriving and really resilient LGBT populations putting on drag shows and doing marches and pride marches. They're still here. They're still mobilizing and existing. One of my sites is the site that has a very strong presence of Clan de Golfo, which is this narco group that's very tied to mexico and it's because it's a drug corridor to the caribbean sea and when i spoke to the LGBT population in this town they would say like we know they're here but they're leaving us alone for the most part the last time I did interviews that was the big narrative more recently there has been a threat made against our trans sex worker so i think the community is a little more on edge and i'll be traveling this summer and finding out more detail but in that community The LGBT community felt like they could really thrive in a way they couldn't, obviously, during this late 90s, early 2000s period when the violence was really extreme with the paramilitaries. But I also spoke to women social leaders, which is the Colombian term for like community activists or leaders. And these women social leaders were still threatened every day. And so there is still a gendered logic to violence in conflict-prone parts of Colombia or in secure parts of Colombia where... Today, it's easier in some sense. I'm not going to, this is all massive amounts of employment discrimination, but in terms of like targeting during war, LGBT people feel a lot less targeted and there's not necessarily a target on their back, whereas women social leaders don't feel that way. And so what is, that logic has changed or the dynamic has changed, but I do wonder how it exists to this logic that I'm putting forward. What's the tolerable space of community dissent? You know, what makes feminists mobilizing so threatening to these groups? They feel the need to squash it. I think it's tied to reporting cases of domestic violence to local government authorities. Because I think what happens is when you report at cases of domestic violence, if predominantly these men are being reported and they're affiliated with the clan de Golfo, they're going to be basically taken off the street. They're going to be put in jail or at least tied up in court action. And that makes them less able to work. And so it's kind of a threat to the business logic. That's just a theory. I don't have any proof of that.
1: That's really interesting, though, that you bring it up. I mean, I do think of Colombia as fairly visibly gendered in a broader sense. For example, one of my good friends was married a couple of years ago, and she's currently facing a lot of social pressure from her family, from her friends, even colleagues, to have children. She doesn't want kids, but it's a gendered expectation. And now you've mentioned domestic violence. I mean, the first time I was in Colombia was about 10 years ago. And even then, I remember signs in the street basically being like, don't hit your wife. And so there is this current of gendered expectations and potentially gendered violence, even beyond the normal types of gender-based violence we associate with violent conflict. And it does make me wonder what the future is in that regard in Colombia especially in light of these really visible international debates and discourses over whether certain people are even allowed to exist, for instance. But my experience with Colombia has always been that, on the other hand, people are so friendly and so welcoming and so accepting of one another. And perhaps this is projection, but it's always seemed to me that there has been maybe a sense of overcoming this huge thing together and this huge heritage of trauma and violence and kidnappings as you mentioned and so it kind of feels like it could go either way but I mean maybe I'm pessimistic because I did a recording a couple of months ago with Solveig Richter and Laura Kamina Berrios and I'm like oh my god everything's going to fall apart so maybe this is really more a reflection of my own headspace.
0: It's an extraordinarily complicated question that I'll do my best but I don't know if I could answer. I mean Listen, I think one of the things that we're seeing in Colombia that we're seeing now in Europe and we're seeing it in the United States, um, it's becoming a global phenomenon is this backlash against gender inclusion, gender, and gender, gender inclusion, feminist mobilization, like queer causes. And it's, it's largely being framed around this idea of like gender ideology, anti-gender ideology. And for those of you who haven't been following Colombia, it was actually a really big reason for the failure of the plebiscite of the peace deal was that there was this massive politicization of the gender component of the peace deal which they said was going to like be teaching kids to be gay, showing gay porn in school, like ridiculous stuff. But, you know, that tactic, that mobilizing frame of like, we need to protect our children. We need to protect the sanctity of family. And as a result, we need to sink this entire peace deal. Jamie Hagan obviously does a lot of work on this with her work on querying women, peace and security agenda. But, you know, that frame, the fact that it sunk a peace deal, we're of a country really hungry for peace, just kind of shows you how effective these mobilizing frames are. That's something that you saw in Peru with Con Mis Hijos No Te Metas, Don't Mess With My Children. Previously in Colombia, sunk an educational minister who was trying to put forward a more inclusive educational program at the national level. And we see it in many places. I mean, part of me is like, I do think this mobilizing frame of anti-gender ideology comes from Latin America and has been exported. But I also think a lot of this, the efficacy of these initiatives have been funded by American radical and like fundamentalist religious organizations. So it's quite global in its its prominence and provenance.
1: It does make me think about the Russian case. I said before we started recording that it was only a master's, but I did research this idea of gayness as a civilizational threat, as it was discussed by Russian politicians in like 2014, 2015, and whether this came from some kind of underscoring belief or whether it was this really cynical mobilization. And I mean my conclusion was, well, no, no, they did this on purpose. And I mean, a big part of it was she needed the support of the Orthodox Church to crush all of the different process against that happening at that time. And the Orthodox Church apparently was like, all right, but you need to be anti-sex workers and anti-gays. And so then they started actually portraying this civilizational threat that Europe was trying to turn Russia gay so they wouldn't have children, so the civilization would collapse. And so, yeah, it was that really, like, there was that religious element, there was that strategic element, and I don't know, like, ontological anxiety, I don't really know what was going on there. But it is fascinating that whether it's backlash, as you just put it, or whether there's just It's something that's a story that's there and politicians and elite are just really cynically using it for attention and to crush some people so everyone else feels more powerful by comparison. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, again, this is is not my feel, but it does fascinate me, obviously, which is why I wanted to have you here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a very big chicken or the egg situation because I think like this type of rhetorical frame has to be resounding or it has to resound in a public for the public to accept it and not challenge it. And one of the things in Colombia, so Colombia, the country with a history of violence, which you've properly denoted as an extraordinarily open and welcome, welcoming and resilient society. You know how they try and counter these like really intense histories of violence. They always also try and narrate and document histories of resistance, which I think is a really powerful move to be like this has happened, but also this happened despite this. And I think to take that to an, another level, higher of abstraction. If you look at these broader efforts of anti gender ideology or anti-gender, anti-feminist, the queer mobilization, where did they fail? And so, you know, when you had these movements in Peru, in Colombia succeed, around the same time, you had an election in Costa Rica between basically two candidates and the person who was in favor of feminist and LGBT mobilization won in Costa Rica. And so it's a success story and it kind of shows that it can be done. But Costa Rica is a special case. The Inter-American Court of Human Rights is based there. It doesn't have an army. It has more teachers than police. It has a long history of peace building. You know, it is championed on these quite progressive causes. And so maybe that frame was more effective there. But basically, like these things can't come out of nowhere. And so that's why there is always this question of like the feminist studies of war that for decades have said basically that war exacerbates existing social structures of exclusion. But you know, when did that tip into becoming a salient cleavage or a salient? rhetorical framing, I think, really depends on our time. You said ontological anxiety. And there's a really interesting anthropologist of predominantly Colombia, but, but elsewhere in Latin America, or predominantly South America, really, called Michael Taussig. And Michael Taussig has this argument in his book, The Devil and Commodity Fetishism in South America. So, like People really double down and commit to witchcraft and believing in mysticism during transitions of economic regimes. And so there is this insecurity, which he identifies as an economic insecurity, but, you know, definitely extends to an ontological range where people become much more likely to commit to something that's spiritual or mythical or sans explanation. I'm not saying this is a new form of mythicism, but I'm saying that there is a type of anxiety that can be unlocked. We are in an era of late capitalism, of growing inequality, of increasing political and elite capture of advanced democracies and non-advanced democracies as well, obviously, but it just becomes, it, it does become this kind of perfect mix where, you know, it's easy to commit to a rhetoric that simplifies a glory, a gloried but unattainable past or non-existent past. So if for that reason, yes, yes, it's hard and it's a scary time. I still remain to be an optimist. And I think there can be moments of success or moments where that kind of rhetoric is fractured, or, you know, when it goes too far. And so I think what I always try and say in general about broader claims of my research is that it goes way beyond LGBT populations because it becomes a justification for broader action. And in Colombia, activists have this theory, which I kind of label the canary in a coal mine theory, which is they say, like, a lot of times LGBT people are clamped down on first before, like, broader paramilitary crackdowns or things of that nature. It starts with one marginalized group It's kind of like establish a frame. But then that's kind of like a gateway to a lot broader crackdown. And I actually want to do more research on this. I'm planning on doing more research with a scholar in Germany, a scholar in Amsterdam, hopefully this fall. Yeah,
1: I mean, look at that famous quote about Hitler's Germany. And first they came for whomever, then they
0: came.
1: So when we tolerate this culture of intolerance, it's so easy for it to expand. So yeah, maybe it starts with the queers and trans people and then maybe women and people of color. And yeah, I mean, it's just... It's a good way to control a population and to say, all right, you're the bad one. You're the good one. Throw out the bad one, we need to fight against them because all the way we will collapse, our civilization will collapse, whatever it might be. But that's a whole other, I think I need to get someone out and rant with me about like Marvel movies and the problems of society, but that's a whole other topic <laughs> because I want to ask you, <laughs> I want to ask you as well about this idea of queer peacebuilding, you've written a paper under construction toward a theory and practice of queer peacebuilding. What does queer peacebuilding refer to? And please tell me I get to wear rainbows 100% of the time. I would love that. That sounds like the best kind of peacebuilding, but I'm sure it's much more serious. Like what, what is that? What are you working on?
0: It's a great question. Uh, it's a challenging question. Obviously, nothing's easy when the word's queer in front of it. So basically, that project is a kind of a project between four scholars who approached this idea of like LGBT lives of war from different angles. So it was Fernando Serrano Maya at the University of Los Andes here in Colombia. It was me. And then it was Jamie Hagen at the Queens University of Belfast. And then it was Melanie Judge of University of Cape Town. And basically, all of us were interested in the insecurity of LGBT lives during war and after war. And we were studying it from different angles. Me and Fernanda were really looking at LGBT lives of conflict. Melanie Judge did a lot about the Postpartum Truth Commission and the new constitution of this rainbow South Africa. And then Jamie works on queering and security agenda at the UN. And so we were all really interested and kind of brought together from our own research, but also from this phenomenon in Colombia of championing and cherishing this, the LGBT inclusivity of the peace deal, the 2016 peace deal with the FARC. And we were wondering, like, you know, what does peace mean in this context? When, you know, what I imagine with your previous conversations and the while you're having a bit of a dark or pessimism of the future in Colombia, is there's been a lot of unmet promises of the peace deal. And that particularly relates to like these promises of security, of no more violence against women social leaders or LGBT activists, these types of things. And so we're like, well, if this is this really a country at peace? Like, what does a post-peace Colombia mean? So we had similar interests, we had similar questions, we had no answers, but we also had similar ideas and commitments, which was, you know, we felt strongly that this type of question and discussion should be based in Colombia, because Colombia is really the first transitional justice process that went the extra mile in terms of incorporating a queer and trans perspective. And so, you know, there's a very famous line that people, activists will say, which is like, we went from one sentence in the South African apartheid, post-apartheid, Truth's Report to 500 pages in the hmm. Colombian Truth Report. And so there was this massive advancement, but this massive advancement was not necessarily taken for granted, but it, no one really sat with what this meant. And so we put together a special issue based out of a, a bilingual or trilingual actual special issue based out the Universidad de los Andes, the Revista de, de Estudios Sociales, so like their journal of social studies. And we basically just have "Who's working on queer peace building. And what does queer peace building mean to them? What does queer peace building mean in these contexts? And so the answer that there is no answer is that queer peacebuilding is like the title itself under construction. We know people have a feeling of what it feels like and what it looks like. It means peace for populations with non-hegemonic sexual orientation and gender identities, but can it extend beyond these populations? And does it always have to be in post-conflict settings? And the biggest tension in understanding what that is it's just this idea of like, you might have a country at peace, like Brazil, but Brazil's probably the most violent country in the Western Hemisphere, if not the world, for LGBT populations. And so is there peace there? Does that mean something to the LGBT population? Does a peace deal mean anything when you're still being threatened? And so it's regrettably one of those papers that asks more questions and it gives answers. But I think what that paper and broader special issue did was rise to this moment to be like, This is a narrative that isn't fully challenged or sat with yet. And if we're going to find peace for these communities, we have to sit with, what does this mean? A lot more than we already have.
1: Fascinating. Fascinating. I want to ask you about your paper as well. The Ontology of Cruelty in Civil War. Firstly, great title. Secondly, what does it mean?
0: It came from my research in Colombia, which was that One of the key ways that academics and scholars of violence understand dynamics and logics of violence is through what we call repertoire, which is looking at what are the types of violence that happening? Is it sexual violence? Is it threats? Is it murder? Is it displacement? Kind of like putting out a toolkit of political forms of violence and documenting when it happens where. My issue was, when I started my research, was that I very quickly noticed that in these hotspots of paramilitary violence against LGBT populations... The repertoires were all the same. It was sexual violence sometimes, but it was predominantly murder, threats, forced disappearance, which is a very Latin American style type of repertoire of violence, which is basically people disappear. And I guess displacement. So I was realizing that like, even though I recognized these case study sites had such different experiences of violence, if I looked at the standard analytical frames of repertoire, it wasn't going to capture this difference. And so I felt like I had to go deeper. And so what I did was this paper, actually, this ontology of cruelty was looking at, despite very similar repertoires, despite the fact that homicide was being used, despite the fact that displacement and threats were being used. In one of the case study sites, the violence was just understood to be so much more horrific. It was so much more like whisper campaigns. It's what everyone knows, even though they were both quite horrific forms of violence. And it was because the violence there was perceived to be a lot more cruel. It was perceived to be a lot more transgressive of sociocultural norms, so more brutal in that sense, but also that it was really charged with inflicting suffering in a way that this other case study site, despite the brutality of the violence, despite the amount of murder that was happening, it wasn't viewed to be as cruel. It was also because it was so intelligible. It was very intelligible, the violence in one of my case study sites. And because it was so intelligible, because there was such a clear, this is why it happened, how it's going to happen. It's going to follow a very standard social cleansing campaign of disappearance, of murder. Like it wasn't viewed as cruel and it wasn't viewed as illogical. It was very perceptible. Whereas in the second site, it was viewed as so illogical, so unpredictable. No one understood why the very famous case from that second site was a boxing match organized by paramilitaries between gay men and trans women to quote unquote restore their masculinity. And so these public spectacles of humiliation, use of sexual violence when someone transgressed, social norms, but no one really understood what the social norms were, it just became so unpredictable, so illogical that it kind of created this like real form of repressive atmosphere in the town where a lot of people talked about like the death of a social life or a very common frame that I heard a lot in my interviews was like, this is a town that had a very strong social fabric that these really cruel forms of violence ripped. And so it made me realize that this perception of cruelty, which cruelty is a very socially perceptive phenomenon or subjective phenomenon it mattered a lot to these populations. And so it was beyond repertoire. It was the characteristics of this violence that really started to color how these communities were interpreting this violence. And so that's what that paper does. The paper actually doesn't mention LGBT populations and that's because of another tragedy of the academy, but it comes from my work on LGBT populations. And it basically says that like, if we're really going to understand the sociopolitical effects of violence, we need to go beyond repertoire and we need to understand The characteristics of this violence, because it's not just the repertoires that these populations are interpreting. They are interpreting the broader characteristics of how these repertoires happen, kind of like the metadata of these actions.
1: And so what's next for you? What are you working on now?
0: I I continue with like a few streams of research. So right now I'm in Colombia predominantly to do this, the transitional dissertation to monograph, collect more stories and continue working in my case study sites. In addition to that, I have a lot of work on LGBT refugee studies, which with those LGBT refugee studies, what I'm focusing on is basically like, what don't we know about the experience of LGBT refugees? And from trying to understand what we don't know, or to understand the real queer difference of what it means to be displaced and LGBTQI+. What does that mean for the broader refugee regime? So I'm working with a colleague, Rebecca Buxton, who's a political philosopher at the University of Bristol, and we're working on this book called Toward a Queer Theory of Refuge. We're basically like following the migrant journey or the journey of the displaced from home to sanctuary. And then every step of the journey, instead of applying what we know about displacement and this specific step towards this population, looking to see how this population experiences that step to kind of. Reconceptualize what we know, or what does sanctuary mean that when you can be given asylum in a country and then put in a very homophobic community, or if you get asylum, be put with the community that you came, but you were fleeing generalized social homophobia, you can't be placed in your same community, and so it challenges questions of obligations and duties of states, and Rebecca's a moral philosopher, so it's been a very happy marriage actually of queer theory and moral philosophy, and that they both have these questions of demands and obligations and challenging. So that's that, my what's next, is I'd like to actually expand my research on marginalization and war to look at this logic of targeting other marginalized groups, the kind that I mentioned earlier, whether it's sex workers, people experiencing homelessness, the neurologically diverse. This is the targeting of you know, what the Nazis called asocials, what the Francoists called antisocials, what paramilitaries in Colombia called subversives. But there's a long history of this idea of what some scholars call social cleansing, It is a lot of history in the Cold War. It happened in the Cono Sword in Argentina and their dictatorship in Chile and all these things. And so my next project will be what I'm calling basically a political history of the concept of social cleansing.
1: You've written so much. And even just now, you've talked about these other things you're going to write. I mean, where does your drives come from to produce so much, especially in the face of what is, I guess, so emotionally challenging as far as material goes as well? Like, how do we keep going?
0: I mean, the second one, there's a cop-out answer, which is, like, just from a very young age, I just knew I was going to be, like, a genocide scholar. And so I have an emotional capacity to uh, handle the subject matter. It's really weird. I can study it. I'm really motivated to redress where these absences lie, and I feel very powerfully about that. But at the same time, like, I can't watch horror movies, and I mm-hmm. can't watch any type of television with a gratuitous violence. And so it's weird that I can look at pictures of massacres. And I can analyze it politically and work on it as a project, but I can't like the last Hunger Games movie was too violent for me. Like Hunger Games, you know, I love Jennifer Lawrence, So I don't know, I guess that's how I process it. And I think I'm really motivated by what I felt when I started my career as a real absence in the academy of taking seriously queer and trans lives as it relates to conflict. People were doing this work and they were just marginalized. Like I'm not, very much not the first person to do it. But what I did was I kind of stood on their shoulders And doubled down and saying, I'm going to use the language of classic political scientists. I'm going to use the language of classic scholars of conflict. And I'm going to, you know, show them that what they've maligned for decades is actually relevant to the logics of war. And, you know, it took a while and I had to really reframe and reframe and reframe, but I think that's the end result. And so we talked about this previously, but I ended up, even though this is a quite interpretive humanist or postmodern space in terms of LGBT and gender studies of conflict, like, I doubled down to use critical realist language because I wanted the critical realists and even the positivists to at least listen to me, even if they don't necessarily follow me. And I, there's, I'm not the first person to do that, obviously. I mean, Libby Wood with her work since early 2000s has been doing that. Leanne Fuji's work was doing that. Like again, there's a lot of scholars already doing this. I just kind of did it from a queer vantage, if you will.
1: Mm. Amazing. So thank you so much for joining me today, Sam. And for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find
0: you? So I have a website. It's myname.com, Samuel ritholf I'm also on Twitter. I'm on... Yeah, I guess I'm just on Twitter. But you feel free to email me. I mean, I, I'm a, I guess I'm on threads, but I haven't really done anything on threads. So... Yeah, you can follow my work there. And you can always email me. I particularly love getting emails from people debating going to graduate school, early career researchers. I'm happy to talk about the challenges and the opportunities in the academy. And so there's always that form of informal mentoring that I benefited so much from. And so I'm happy for people to be in touch. And also policymakers. I I do sometimes get asked policy questions. And I think my work obviously is policy research. And so I'm happy to be in touch.
1: Amazing. And also heartwarming. You're out there helping the next generation. It's just fabulous. Well, look, again, thank you so much, Sam. And until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict to Being podcast from Mediate.com.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.